Blog Talk Radio.
Tracking who we meet And call this liberty Control, 
and uh, that's specifically talking about uh, our government and uh, what it's doing, which is attempting to exert control into every aspect of our lives. There is there is absolutely no subject, no part of our lives that the government is not willing to insert itself into and attempting to regulate from uh, what you can uh, drink, uh, what you can go to the store and buy in a drink, to uh, what you can watch on television or listen to on the radio, uh, to the fact that uh, they don't want they 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 want to make it illegal. It already is illegal in uh, a lot of places, but they're making it illegal in places like Colorado uh, to set a, a barrel uh, under the eaves and catch the rainwater that comes down. It's illegal. Illegal for you to catch water rainwater. I'm assuming that if you had a hole in your house in your roof and you put buckets under it to uh, uh, to catch the water that might otherwise ruin your home, that that would be considered illegal too unless you were taking it outside and throwing it onto the ground so that it could uh, then run and make its course down so that uh, the the state government or the municipalities could eventually trap it in their reservoirs and then sell it uh, for profit. There is no aspect of our lives that is not somehow affected by uh, or at least being looked at uh, in order to have it come under the control of the government. And uh, this to me is it's a very fascinating uh, and at the same time disgusting part of, uh, of our lives, uh, and that is the, the relinquishing of control, because in many in many cases, uh, a lot of Americans are are very much for this. They're very much for uh, turning over control of their lives, or relinquishing control of their lives, of their uh, responsibility to make decisions, to take care of themselves, etc. They want to be taken care of by the government. They want to be taken care of by the nanny state. They want to be uh, shuttle forward in a cradle-to-grave conduit that is prepared for them by the government. Everything uh, that you do in life, everything that comes to you, everything that you would produce uh, to either come to you from the stream of government or for you to contribute into the stream of government. And I really don't know. I really don't know how we're going to how we're going to escape this. And there's some things that we can do in a minute. We'll we'll we'll, we'll start talking some about the uh, Senate Joint Resolution 19. Now, you probably some of you folks are probably getting emails uh, on this because uh, it's getting closer. It's moving closer to coming up to a vote. The the resolution actually came about uh, uh, back in May, and uh, and there has been uh, you know discussion of it since then. There have been companion bills that uh, have been uh, working their way uh, through the quagmire, 
but this is the the second uh, the second free speech uh, assault on our rights uh, in the last couple of decades. The first one was back in 2004 uh, when we had the McCain-Feingold Act. And this was... Uh, This was uh, an attempt to uh, to curb or, or some way uh, limit the uh, financial contributions. <clears throat> but there was also in the uh, uh, see we've got uh, <clears throat> let's see it was. Uh, it was actually the actually called the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act of uh, 2002, uh, but it's also known as the McCain-Feingold. <clears throat> and uh, this was enacted in uh, March of 2002. Now, this particular uh, act was, uh, was in, uh, intended to amend the Federal Election Campaign Act of 71, which also regulates the financing of political campaigns. And the chief sponsors were Russ Feingold, who's a Democrat from Wisconsin, and John McCain, Republican of Arizona. And uh, the, the uh, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, <laughs> and like I said, everyone called it McCain-Feingold now, but the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act was uh, was actually intended to address the two issues. First off, was the the massive amounts of soft money in campaign financing. You know, this is the uh, the money that was coming in without uh, tracks and wasn't being through uh, by the political parties, stuff like that. And it was prohibiting the political parties from raising or spending any of the, the funds that they had accumulated uh, that were not subject to federal limits. And this is even for the state or local races or uh, issues. And the proliferation of the issue advocacy ads. And uh, we did this by defining uh, as electioneering communications all of the broadcast ads that would name a federal candidate within 30 days of a primary or uh, 60 days of a general election. And then this prohibited uh, any kind of ads or any kind of, uh, uh, any kind of campaign uh, ads that uh, were paid for by corporations. And that includes the uh, nonprofit uh, organizations uh, or they were paid for by an unincorporated entity using any type of a corporate or union general treasury funds. And uh, the decision that was made by the Supreme Court, uh, the Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, overturned this provision 
but uh, not the ban on foreign corporations or foreign nationals in uh, decisions regarding political spending. Now, although the the, the legislation uh, is commonly known as the McCain-Feingold Act, the the Senate version is is not actually the bill that became law. Uh, rather, the companion legislation, that's uh, H.R. 2356, which was int- introduced by uh, Representative Chris Chase, who's a Republican in Connecticut, is the version that actually became laws. And uh, that's the, uh, that was called the Shays Meehan, and it was originally introduced as H.R. Uh, 380. So, the McCain-Feingold Act uh, was attempting to limit speech, limit free speech. In, in a way, I can see some of the uh, some of the things that they were wanting to do because uh, if you if somebody says something right at the last minute uh, before you can before you can come back with any defense against it. And they indeed have an, uh, have some type of effect on the election. However, the the First Amendment was written uh, specifically to protect political speech. Uh, if you if you look back on the history of uh, of the colonies uh, well before the American Revolutionary War you could be uh, arrested uh, beaten imprisoned even executed for saying bad things of government even if they were completely true Uh, the government had that power and uh, that, of course, is why we have uh, that in our Constitution now. You, you can see, you can draw direct lines back uh, directly to the events uh, occurring before and during the, uh, uh, the, the birth of our nation uh, for the, the things that we have in the Bill of Rights. So you have... Uh, uh, the Freedom of Speech Amendment. We have the uh, amendment to protect uh, American citizens against unreasonable search and seizure. And you'll even hear you even hear about that being discussed uh, if you read about the events of uh, uh, of April nineteenth. You will, uh, what was I saying? You will, you will, uh, you will read about the British uh, troops coming to the house of the colonists and uh, and searching the homes without warrant. And uh, that was uh, that was a, a pretty serious thing to the folks back then, and 
and it should be, and it is today. Uh, back then, uh, they didn't want you just coming up to uh, coming up to their homes and uh, busting the door in and saying, "We're here to see if you stole anything, and we're just going to look around and see if you stole anything." Then <clears throat> you had to have uh, you had to have some type of reasonable uh, suspicion that uh, that you had perhaps stolen something, and they would get the magistrate or the constable. And uh, they would come maybe and ask you, but nobody's going to just bust into your home and start uh, looking around. And uh, and that is uh, one of the direct things that the Fourth Amendment was uh, was put in to protect. Uh, you have the Third Amendment, which prohibits the quartering of soldiers in private homes without the owner's consent during peacetime. Uh, this was another thing that was happening uh, uh, during the uh, in the during the years leading up to the American Revolutionary War. You had the uh, British uh, soldiers being quartered in folks' homes. They would just uh, uh, tell a certain number of folks, "Well, you're going to take you two guys are going to take uh, uh, these uh, three soldiers. Uh, this home over here is going to take these three or four soldiers." Uh, so on and so forth, until they had quartered all of their soldiers with uh, private families, and those families would, uh, you know, would would need to shelter them, and I think in a lot of cases they were required to feed them. And uh, once the war was over, and they got around to uh, to writing the documents, which would then uh, guide our nation. That was one of the things that they. Uh, they wanted to make sure that wasn't going to happen. You had the uh, right the, in the years leading up to the American Revolutionary War uh, during the Intolerable Acts. You had the uh, the uh, the local governments suspended, and you had the uh, the British government. <clears throat> had suspended your ability to receive a trial uh, in the colonies. So whenever something happened, what they wanted to do with you then was they'd put you on a ship, send you to England, and they would have your trial there. Now, there's a whole lot of stuff wrong with that, including the fact that uh, if you wanted to have a witness or you wanted to question a witness at your trial, there was no way that was going to happen. They were back in the colonies, uh, and unless you were very wealthy, you you weren't going to be able to pay for them to be uh, uh, shipped over and on a ship at a pretty decent cost, and and the months it would take to get them to to sail to England, and the months it would take to sail back to the colonies. Uh, so you have the Sixth Amendment, which protects the right to a fair and speedy public trial by jury, not a private trial by a uh, a military commander, but a public trial by jury, including the right to confront the accuser and to obtain witnesses and to retain a counsel. There are, there are a lot of uh, 
are specific rights that uh, that you can draw direct lines to uh, from today back to the period uh, before and during the American Revolutionary War. Uh, and certainly, uh, the First Amendment is one of those that, that includes uh, prohibiting making any law abridging the freedom of speech. Any law abridging the freedom of speech. Uh, one of the things uh, in Joint Revolution 19 wants to do, like I said, is uh, it wants to limit uh, the 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 speech uh, by a lot of uh, uh, a lot of the groups that uh, that are working hard to help educate Americans on uh, on issues, things like uh, well, the uh, National Rifle Association. Uh, they want to uh, certainly to limit the ability of folks like the NRA, uh, Gun Owners of America, uh, National Association of Gun Rights. They want to limit uh, what these organizations can do or say, but it also leaves the door open uh, to uh, for further uh, action that be that can be taken. Uh, against where uh, I guess if you if you ran it out to its end, uh, it would be a case of uh, where you could you yourself could go to jail for uh, for writing a letter to your mom and dad uh, explaining what uh, what you thought about uh, some law or some candidate. Uh, <clears throat> The the Constitution and the Bill of Rights is uh, in pretty decent shape uh, the way it is now. Uh, I think that if we were really interested in doing something, uh, I could much even much easier uh, get behind. Uh, some type of uh, immediate uh, limitation of terms for uh, Congress and the Senate. <laughs> I think that uh, we need to. Uh, I think we need to begin clearing house uh, on almost all of our current uh, petitions. Now, I don't know what. Uh, I don't know much of what we can do uh, about this other than uh, I would get on the phone uh, and talk to my representatives right now and tell them that uh, that voting for this to pass this uh, this into law uh, would be a deal breaker for me that uh, if that happened, 
that I would vote for whoever opposing them, no matter what their political affiliation, uh, because this would be, uh, like I said, this would be a deal breaker for me. And uh, I think that uh, I think that if the folks started doing that, uh, that's really the only power you're going to have to do this. Now, uh, the proponents back in 2002 uh, really felt that the McCain-Feingold Act would restore trust in the political system. And... uh, and some even suggested that uh, that the parties, the political parties themselves, would uh, begin to thrive because they would be forced to rely on small donations rather than the large corporate uh, donations, you know, funds from from it. However, uh, a lot of critics uh, predicted it would uh, precipitate uh, a major shift a political uh, power away from the actual parties and send it toward outside groups, uh, which could very easily be more extreme and less accountable for their actions. And uh, and certainly now you can uh, look back uh, at what at, at these predictions and uh, and see that they're pretty much true. Uh, the and back in 2004, you had the outside groups such as uh, the uh, ACT Americans Coming Together and the Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. They're both playing uh, major roles in this. And by the time the Citizens United uh, was decided in 2010, all the uh, the really well-funded out- outside groups had really proliferated on on both sides. Now, and when this happened, <clears throat> when you when you took the money away from the parties and started uh, shifting it toward the outside groups, uh, the the revenue from the parties uh, began to erode uh, and uh, by the uh, 2006 uh, midterms uh, the party fundraising uh, was steadily declining uh, ever since the decision uh, chunks like, uh, you know, a quarter of a billion dollars. Uh, the parties began to to be able to, uh, they were not, they were no longer able uh, to pull the type of money that they had been. And uh, this, the, the shortfall in the party funding as compared to the outside groups, really kind of undercut the the party's uh, traditional role in the political system. And uh, the uh, 
kind of the, the parties kind of began to uh, to kind of shrink up. Uh, both of the major parties then began to use uh, their soft money uh, to support a, a really extensive uh, grassroots uh, network throughout their state party committees. And then as those funds dried up, the state parties began shriveling up. And uh, that has left the state parties uh, really barely able to uh, to to work aggressively against uh, any of the outside parties where the where the money was not regulated uh, by McCain Feingold. Uh, the the system. Uh, and like I said, this is uh, it's it's kind of difficult for me to completely grasp and explain. But I can tell you this: that with each of these uh, with each of these changes, uh, such as this last, as the uh, uh, McCain-Feingold. Uh, the overturn by Citizens United and McCutcheon, the uh, the pushes back and forth, uh, has left us with an electoral system that is just completely awash in unaccountable soft money, uh, as well as polarizing campaigns. Because if you take the money away from the folks in the middle who are trying to be uh, fairly mild, uh, mannered folks and send it to the folks on uh, the radical left and right then then you you remove any middle of the ground and you know maybe that's what we need to do I don't know uh, but the, the money is now unaccountable because it's being uh, it's being funneled into outside groups uh, so uh, the unintended consequences that you get from each of these uh, each of these new operations are are pretty uh, pretty intense. And who's to say? Uh, you know, every time there is some new uh, campaign finance or reform that is. <clears throat> suggested, uh, there is immediately, especially once it goes into effect, even before it goes into effect, there are, uh, there are certainly uh, thousands of folks uh, working as hard as they can work to figure out the ways to counteract uh, that, how to get, uh, how to find the loopholes in it, how to uh, how to funnel money around it, how to get around it. And there's always a way. And of course, many times, the uh, 
the loopholes are certainly uh, already well known beforehand and planned into it. Uh, so that uh, you think that somebody is saying, look, here, I want to do the right thing. I want to, uh, I really want to put together a, a campaign finance reform law that's going to limit contributions from, uh, uh, from corporations. And it's going to, it's going to put the, uh, you know, the, the average guy, the, 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 the little man back uh, in, on equal playing field with the, with the uh, corporate entities, et cetera. You can already, you can always bet that that's not the case. You can always bet that it's almost always the exact opposite. They've already figured out some way uh, to rechannel uh, money uh, to get the uh, to to funnel it into uh, the goals that they want to achieve. I'm not sure this sounds really cynical, but uh, <laughs> Good grief. There are enough examples of this that uh, uh, I think that uh, the majority of America is becoming, well, in regards to our representatives, uh, it seems to me that uh, there is no longer <clears throat> that our government certainly no longer have any real intentions of uh, of representing us, uh, they uh, they are simply uh, led and uh, paid uh, by the corporate entities who w- wish to see uh, their needs uh, attended to. <clears throat> and believe me, I'm not uh, saying this because uh, I'm I want to implement some type of uh, some type of anti-capitalism. Uh, I don't. I'm just saying that uh, I wish that there was uh, I wish that there was some way to get in representatives, senators, and uh, congressmen that that actually cared about the job that they were doing. I certainly think that one of the uh, one of the main ways that uh, that we're ever going to achieve any control over this is going to be through uh, requiring term limits. But uh, you know, even the even if you somehow mandated term limits, uh, there I'm sure there would just as rapidly uh, be some type of uh, program instituted uh, that could help get around that. So I'm not sure what the the answer is going to be. Uh, and listen, if you have any, uh, if anyone has any questions or comments, you're always welcome to call in. The call in number is uh, 347-308-8700. Nine zero three four seven three zero eight eight seven nine zero. All right. Uh, the uh, 
Tim, do you have something you wanted to? Uh, oh, I was going to let you before I butted in here. Uh, you know, it's very easy to feel uh, a little bit beat over some of this stuff because, uh, as you said, they'll always try to find a dodge and a way to get around whatever good improvements we can make. People have to remember that this is not a, a, a fix-it-and-walk-away deal. You have to work hard to maintain liberty. That's that's how we got where we are now, by not paying attention and keeping up the effort. This is not a one-time fix where you get in, make it okay, say this is great, and walk away. We have to stay involved and, and maintain improvements on it. Otherwise, it'll end up just as bad as we are now. Right. Right. right, and that's kind of what I was talking about uh, in the beginning of the show, and that is uh, so many people uh, have uh, relegated uh, their responsibilities to the government. They want the government to take care of them. Now, I'm not talking just about I'm not talking about just about welfare uh, folks and stuff like that. I'm talking about uh, a good number of uh, of uh, middle class uh, American citizens who uh, are were doing basically what uh, Sam was just talking about, which is uh, vote for some bill or something and then walk away and leave it, uh, not monitor it, not uh, see if it's being implemented as they were told it would be, and uh, and not holding the Reps feet to the fire when it's not. Whenever they whenever they see them devising some way to get around it, or if they see that they have uh, uh, created some uh, loophole, either intentionally or unintentionally, uh, and not uh, holding them accountable for it and making them fix it, because uh, anytime they uh, uh, a bill goes into effect. Uh, there are there is certainly uh, uh, time limits put into it uh, where it can be altered and amended, and uh, it can always be uh, things can always be done to to tweak it, to fine tune it, and that's what that's what we have to do because too long people have not been paying attention to what's going on in the government, and believe me, it's. Uh, it is rough because we're talking about uh, thousands of uh, of laws, thousands of bills, and uh, everything you can imagine. Like I said, the government has gone uh, has worked overtime to insert themselves into every aspect of our lives, uh, and and many times uh, the the individual laws, while they may indeed uh, be good or they may indeed achieve the desired effect, uh, because it's like taking a, uh, two handfuls of prescription medicine at the same time, uh, a lot of people don't understand the unintended consequences uh, of certain laws. And those are the things that uh, that we have to pay attention to. That we have to uh, we have to 
to keep our eyes open. We have to, once a, uh, a bill or a law has been uh, put into effect, then we have to, uh, we have to monitor it. And uh, I'm not saying that everybody has to, uh, has to monitor every single law. I'm just saying that if more people uh, got into, uh, if they understood their responsibility, let me put it that way, they understood their responsibility uh, as oversight to the government, uh, then we'd be in a much better position. So, uh, like Sam said, this isn't a uh, this isn't a uh, fire and forget uh, type situation, you know, with our with our constitution, uh, with the way our government is run. <laughs> this is something that we have to stay involved in. All right. Uh, I'd like to, uh, and, and listen, I'd like, what I'd like for you guys to do is uh, you can go to, anytime you want to know what, uh, uh, what a certain law says or what, uh, uh, what a proposed bill or legislation uh, involves, you can always go to the Library of Congress and, uh, and look it up. They've got to post all of them there, and uh, you can go there and you can read them. Like I said, that doesn't necessarily mean that that you're going to understand what uh, what all of the implications are going to be. You can certainly read it. Now, one of the things that uh, that always has me worried, though, is when uh, when one side or the other uh votes completely straight party line uh on any issue then that's certainly something I think you need to look at and uh I believe that's certainly the case for uh, uh the uh, SGR 19 uh it was introduced uh on June 18 2013 to the Senate uh by Mr. Udall of New Mexico uh, for himself, Mr. Bennett, Mr. Harkin, Mr. Schumer, Mrs. Shaheen, Mr. Whitehouse, Mr. Tester, Mrs. Boxer, Mr. Coons, Mr. King, Mr. Murphy, Mr. Wyden, Mr. Franken, Ms. Klobuchar, uh, and Mr. Udall. Uh, these are the folks that uh, introduced it. <clears throat> the uh, the article states, Section 1, to advance the fundamental principle of political equity for all and to protect the integrity of the legislative and electoral processes. Congress shall have the power to regulate the raising and spending of money and in-kind equivalents with respect to federal elections, including through setting limits on, number one, the amount of contribution to candidates for nomination for election to or for election to federal office and to the amount of funds that, may, funds that may be spent by in support of or in opposition to such candidates. Section 2 says to advance the fundamental principle of political equity for all 
and to protect the integrity of the legislative and electoral processes. Each state shall have power to regulate the raising and spending of money and in-kind equivalents with respect to state elections, including through setting limits on, one, the amount of contribution to candidates for nomination for election to or for election to state office, and two, the amount of funds that may be spent by, in support of, or in opposition to such candidates. Section 3, nothing in this article shall be construed to to grant Congress the power to abridge the freedom of the press. Section 4, Congress and the state shall have power to implement and enforce this article by appropriate legislation. So the press has got themselves carved out a a little uh, free uh, elbow room here. And... uh, it's kind of to be expected because the mainstream media has really pretty much uh, all folded over to the left. Uh, so, so the the Democratic uh, senators <coughs> felt that, uh, that they'll they'll leave the the left leaning free press uh, alone, but that doesn't mean that they're going to leave anyone else alone. Uh, This could very well end up uh, uh, affecting the uh, affecting the uh, all of the folks that are running blogs, uh, all of the folks that uh, are in uh, some of these smaller uh, organizations, or even the larger, larger organizations. Uh, keeping them from uh, educating their uh, members uh, on uh, uh, certain events. So this isn't uh, uh, this is much deeper than uh, than what it says on the on the text of the document. Uh, if it if they actually put in there intended to restrict restrict uh, any conservative free speech, then it, it would be a much harder to pass, right? Uh, so they didn't put that in. Uh, so so you'll need to uh, you'll need to read what is in it, and then uh, and see how that is going to affect uh, you and how it's going to affect uh, any of the uh, any of the folks that you are working with on this. You know, go ahead, Sam. Yeah, Scout, uh, one thing I'd, I'd like to remind people, uh, I find this particular bill pretty objectionable, but once in a while we see a bill that that looks pretty good uh, that we read it as we read things and say, yeah, this is a great law. We need to have that put down. And we have to remember that courts don't always interpret things necessarily the way we do, uh, even though when we think it's pretty clear, straightforward English. And there are things... Uh, 
that are done that are found to be constitutional and in alignment with the law. We see a bill like this. Uh, okay, it does just this and nothing more. And the court will get a hold of it and look at it in an entirely different light than we do. You know, I think it's absolutely look- correct. I mean, take a look at all of the uh, all of the stuff that's going on with the uh, uh, with uh, the uh, judicial process, I think, and religious movements. Uh, because if you look at the Constitution, I mean, it very very simply says. Uh, Congress shall enact no laws. It doesn't say there is no such thing. People always say, uh, look, it's uh, separation of church and state. It's in the Constitution. There's nothing in the Constitution that says there will be a separation of church and state. The uh, amendment simply says Congress shall enact no laws. And uh, this was pretty much intended uh, because the states at the time wanted to be to keep the power to make uh, or strike down laws concerning religion uh, on their own. Uh, each of these states at the time, each of the, well, the colonies at the time, okay, or were, were founded uh, at, by individual uh, religions. And they no, nobody wanted one religion to be able to get up to the top uh, and... Uh, subjugate all the rest. So the way they figured they would do that was by ensuring that Congress could not make any laws uh, concerning uh, religious freedom. The states uh, always meant to withhold that ability for themselves so that they could make laws concerning it. Now, personally, I don't feel that... uh, I think that the God that I worship doesn't need uh, men to help them in any way. The God I, the God I worship doesn't, uh, he's, not, he's, he's not hobbling along on crutches saying, oh, I wish they would make some laws that could help me out here, man. Throw a brother a bone. Uh, the God I worship is uh, totally capable of uh, taking care of himself. But the, the our government it was never meant to get involved in it, our national government. <coughs> Uh, you were getting ready to say something else though, before I went off my tirade. Well, we have a, a, a lot of laws out there that we look at uh, and constitutional decisions made by the courts. People forget that those courts are much more influenced by uh, people's opinions and by pressure from the other branches of government in what they do, uh, in one of the prime cases uh, concerning the Interstate Commerce Clause of the Constitution, it says that the government will have the right to regulate interstate commerce. And the prime case that the federal government uses to justify their regulatory behavior uh, and a lot of their for laws everything. Uh, for everything is a case called uh, Wickard versus Philburn. It had to deal with a guy uh, growing wheat on his own property. And the Supreme Court decided that the federal government had a right to tell you what you could or could not grow on your own property. Whether that uh, crop left the farm, 
cross state lines or not. Right. Because, uh, you know, uh, that wheat might have made it out there and it might have an influence on. It could possibly affect the, the, the prices uh, and, uh, and the trade. Yeah, the Interstate Commerce Clause has got to be one of the absolute uh, worst misinterpreted uh, uh, laws that we have. No person in his right mind could ever get the idea from reading our Constitution that uh, a man could be prosecuted under the Interstate uh, Commerce Clause for growing and never left his own property. Right. But that's the foundation that the federal government uses for sticking their nose in literally every economic activity we have. And uh, people need to be well aware of that. Uh, there are many that are just as egregious. I don't remember them right offhand, but anyone who wants to study at all can find them. And they need to remember that just because a law looks good or looks bad, you can't assume that a court is going to interpret it this way or that. And that's why it's so important how we uh, keep our noses in the judicial nomination process and, and you know, stay on those senators about those things. We, we allowed the Senate to kill the filibuster by internal rule when it was one of the prime mechanisms that the people depended on to stop uh, poor judicial nomination. Right. Uh, and, and that happened because the people didn't care. They didn't get involved. I, I guess that there must have been a ball game on that day or something, but nobody cared. Nobody said, hey, Senate, no, you can't do that. We don't want that. And, and the Senate did it, and they did it big time. Yep. Uh, you must maintain knowledge. You have to pay attention to what's going on in the Congress uh, or your state legislature or your city council, and you have to stay involved in it from morning till night and get up the next morning and get right back in the game. I'm done right. with my life. And, uh, well, and that is and that's the whole point uh, that I'm trying to make with uh, – with reading of the uh, of uh, the Senate Joint Resolution 19, uh, the if, if just by reading it to advance the fundamental principle of political equity for all, to protect the integrity of the legislative and electoral process, each state shall have the power to regulate the raising and spending of money and in-kind equivalents with respect to state elections. And uh, and you read that and you go, well, I don't know. That sounds okay to me. They're they're trying to make everybody equal. Uh, problem is uh, that that the uh, the American Center for Law and Justice uh, has done an analysis of this and. Uh, in their analysis, they feel that uh, the Senate Joint Resolution 19 represents actually one of the, the gravest threats to freedom and political speech since the Alien and Sedition Acts of 1798. What could happen is 
this could give Congress a really a kind of a carte blanche uh, authority over political speech about candidates for federal office uh, and at the same time uh, do the same thing for the states, uh, granting states uh, complete authority over any type of speech about candidates for state office. Because uh, SDR 19 contains really no qualifying language, it's a it's a very uh, it's a very wide open document. Uh, nor does it suggest that there are there are any First Amendment protection limits uh, that are that are going to limit Congress's power under the amendment. Uh, as far as being an, an an independent amendment to the Constitution, uh, SGR 19 is really is fundamentally uh, incompatible with uh, our original First Amendment guarantees. And really that that renders a, a possible uh, clash between the two amendments. If you have one amendment... Uh, granting free speech and another amendment limiting it, this is really, uh, I don't know that there is, has ever been anything quite like this before. Uh, the, uh, it, it's, this is just, uh, it's a very dangerous uh, amendment and very ambiguous, uh, like uh, like the uh, the Center for Law and Justice was was indicating. There is no there is no limiting language uh, for Congress or the states. There's they're basically just being given this uh, this power without any limits on it, and and they can uh, they're apparently going to be able to. Uh, interpret it uh, however they want to. Basically, like you were talking about, Sam, with the uh, interstate commerce clause, that uh, they can use it really in uh, in any in any way that that they want, and uh, and that it could actually very uh, uh, it could very strongly influence. Uh, it can very strongly in, in, influence the balance of power that we uh, that we now have, and uh, and that's not good. Uh, uh, the as I said at the beginning, the the First Amendment. Uh, has always been about political speech. I mean, that's what it was. That's what it was always intended to protect. Uh, flag burning, bending crosses in urine, uh, getting uh, ten thousand of your buddies out in the streets to chant "Death to America." Uh, those are all, you know, those are all very, uh, very happy side uh, byproducts. Of it, but that's not what it was intended to do. Uh, 
the First Amendment has its fullest and most urgent application to speech uttered during a campaign for political office. Uh, therefore, political speech must prevail against laws that would suppress it, whether by design or inadvertence. Uh, this is uh, from the Citizens United uh, versus the Federal Electoral Commission. <clears throat> this uh, would allow the uh, allow SGR 19 to cripple political speech by allowing Congress uh, really an unfettered power to limit the amount of money spent to speak out on political issues and engage in any type of advocacy. And uh, political advocacy is pretty much has no power if it's not publicized. And it can't be publicized without money. So if, if they're, uh, one of the main goals is to attempt to limit uh, money, then they're limiting what you could say because there's no way to... There's no way to get out any type of mass uh, communications without spending the money to do it. Uh, the amendment would undo uh, Supreme Court cases who recognize that the imposition of financial constraints on political speech actually hampers political advocacy and impairs the essential mechanism of democracy. The, the amount of money a person or a group can spend on a political communication during a campaign uh, it obviously it necessarily reduces the quantity of expression by restricting the number of issues discussed, uh, by restricting the depth of the way that they explore it, and uh, ultimately by uh, restricting the size or the number of people uh, that the message goes out to, uh, which is certainly because Every method, every means of communicating uh, in today's mass society requires spending money to do it. Uh, even no matter whether you're, uh, if you're buying uh, printing ink, paper, uh, if you're paying people to mail them out or whatever, it, it, it all takes money. And if you can, uh, if the government can limit your money, then they can limit what you can say, or they can certainly limit how many people you can say it to. Uh, so this is, uh, uh, at the very least, I think, uh, an end run uh, around it. If, uh, if SCR 19 was adopted, uh, the Congress would be able to actually reenact the speaker discrimination law, which was struck down uh, in the Citizens United case, and really uh, actually criminalize the speech of groups that they did not favor. If you if if you fall out of favor. Uh, with Congress, then they could uh, uh, they could restrict you from speaking. They actually they could uh, restrict or ban the publication of uh, of all the biographies of uh, of any candidates for public office. Uh, uh, the 
uh, SGR 19 could uh, could limit political speech by limiting the financing of s- such speech, and which would uh, ultimately end up destroying the political accountability. In authorizing Congress and the state to limit speech, the amendment could suppress the means to hold official accounts, uh, hold officials uh, uh, accountable to the people. That means that they could they could tilt the playing field against challengers and in favor of incumbents by limiting the amount of money that the challengers could raise. Uh, so that the people who are in office could uh, more easily keep themselves in office by limiting the amount of money that anybody who wants to challenge them could raise, which I think is probably one of the ultimate goals of this, uh, of SDR 19. Ensure that the folks who are in power, who are in power, Schumer, Boxer, Pelosi, uh, all the folks who are in power, who have been in power forever, who look like uh, mummies, that they remain in power by limiting the ability of anyone to to spend any money uh, on their own campaigns. So, once again, I think this is a very bad idea. And uh, now, if you just took uh, if you took just the speech clause uh, by itself, it could be viewed as a protection of the liberty to express ideas and beliefs. While the press clause focuses specifically on the liberty to disseminate expression broadly uh, by the press and uh, comprehends every sort of publication which affords a vehicle of information and opinion. But there's no fundamental distinction here between expression and dissemination. Uh, The the liberty that I told you earlier that that they had carved out for us, which is, which seems as though it's a complementary to and a natural extension of the speech clause liberty, uh, seemed like uh, it, they got the special attention simply because uh, it had been more often the object of official restraints. Uh, the the liberty of the press, and uh, I'm sure that. I'm, I'm sure that one of the things that they would want to do is uh, is to limit the the definition of press, uh, but the, the the press is really not confined to uh, newspapers, magazines, uh, stuff like that. It, it it would have to embrace pamphlets and leaflets because these have, have historically been weapons in the defense of liberties, ever since the beginning, ever since they uh, remember the, the first pamphlets put out in the colonies, like uh, uh, the, the, the press in its historic 
connotation uh, really covers every sort of publication which can afford uh, a vehicle of information and opinion. Uh, what we have had recent occasion to say with respect to the vital importance of protecting this essential liberty from every sort of infringement really doesn't need to be repeated, but and yet they do. Uh, the the giving Congress uh, the ability to uh, to do things like uh, banning uh, movies or theatrical productions. Uh, this is uh, this is certainly, uh, I think, a road that we don't want to go down. <clears throat> you ready to jump in again, Sam? The, the very first and probably the only court case that anybody ever hears about when they're in the public schools in America dealt with freedom of the press and freedom of speech. The only trial that I ever heard about in the entire time I was in high school was about the trial of John Peter Zenger, who was tried for libel because he printed the truth in his newspaper. And the jury said <laughs> the truth is a positive defense to libel. But that case was about freedom of the press and freedom of speech. And it's a very prized item. It's in the First Amendment. People will tell you there are limits on your freedom of speech. You can't go into a crowded theater and yell, fire it. Fire. But right. you can. You can do that. Yeah, there is no limit on that. You must only pay the price if you get somebody killed in the crowd. Right. You have right. that right. There, there is no law against it. You can go into the theater and uh, scream, fire, fire. And uh, I'm sure that... Uh, as long as everybody ran out safely, uh, there's no law saying that uh, that you're going to uh, be arrested for that specifically. Now, they could get you for uh, disturbing the peace or some type of malicious mischief, but you can't be arrested even for yelling fire. There's, like you said, you're, there are just certain consequences that uh, you would be liable to. We already are seeing restrictions on our freedom of speech. You go to many cities and a lot of universities, and lately in, in that fiasco uh, out in uh, with Bundy out in Nevada, they are posting what they call free speech zones. They're way out of the public eye and where you can't tell anybody anything, and there is no constitutional authority for those uh, free speech zones to be erected or for them yeah. to place a limitation on your free speech. But people are already acquiescing to this this officialdom. Some government weenie puts a sign up, says you can only exercise your First Amendment right right here. Right. It's not valid law. You know, I wonder if what they would do if we, uh, if we put up some big signs that said uh, – uh, Federal law invalid in this area. This is a uh, a a, uh, a federal law free zone. <laughs> kind of like make it, 
Would that make it legitimate? I don't think it would. Uh, it doesn't make it any more legitimate than than their <laughs> signs that they put up, which is free speech zone. And I, I, I when I saw the pictures of that, I, I swear I, I actually thought that was uh, uh, you know a a bit of uh, sarcasm, uh, you know, humorous. Uh, I thought it was done by the protesters. When I actually found out it had been done by the by the government, I was just I was stunned. I, I was under the impression that there were no areas within the borders of the United States from Canada, Mexico, and from the Atlantic to the Pacific that were not covered by your constitutional uh, rights. But apparently. Uh, the government had decided that it can limit them uh, just by putting up some signs. <laughs> I, I but, went to and they can. They can. They they certainly can do that uh, because we let them. Uh, if uh, if every time they did something like that, uh, there were people that tore the signs up. Uh, and of course, it's one of those things like. Uh, uh, like charging a machine gun nest, you know, uh, there is no machine gun nest that cannot be overrun. No matter, no matter how many, uh, uh, how good the shots they are, if you've got enough people that uh, that you can send to it, because uh, it, because that's just the way that it works, and that's the way that uh, that's the way that we would have to become, and that, that we need to become uh, in order to. Uh, in order to meet the the threats to our freedoms and liberties that uh, that they're putting up now, and that is, uh, and I know a lot of people are, I get to have people every day telling me that uh, they think that uh, groups like uh, uh, open carry groups and stuff like that are are wrong that they're uh, that they are pushing it at the wrong time and stuff like that that they're they're overdoing it, and my answer to that is that I don't think so, because without them making it understood that we have a right to do this, then then people are still under the impression uh, that we shouldn't be allowed to do it. Uh, so, and and fortunately, there are more and more people who are willing. To, to go head to head with uh, with the government authorities who are trying to limit uh, our freedoms. Well, I've noticed that, uh, that just recently, and I didn't realize it until just recently. What a dang hotbed of uh, of not just uh, of federal but of state and local. Uh, problems that there were in New Mexico. I mean, there are a lot of things going on there in New Mexico that I really never would have, I guess I never would have suspected, but the more and more that I researched it, uh, you guys have a lot of dang uh, local governments that are really corrupt. We sure do. I mean, uh, every state does. Every state does. It's just that 
I guess maybe I didn't think of, of, of so much about uh, New Mexico being that way. I've been through there many times, and it uh, <clears throat> it just, uh, I don't know, I just never really thought about it or saw it that way. But, dang, I, the more I've been reading lately about New Mexico, about uh, some of the police departments there, uh, how they have gotten really, uh, uh, how they've gotten corrupt, how they've been pushing uh pushing the citizens, especially uh, like uh, in Albuquerque. Uh, I mean, there's been a lot that's been going on lately in several of the towns there in New Mexico that has really been making the news and has really been changing, uh, I guess, what I thought about New Mexico. A lot of the uh, the local governments have really gotten out of control. They have. They have. And, and the big thing is that uh, culturally a lot of people don't care um, that's a cultural for a lot of the people here in New Mexico. Um, uh, unless your ox is the one that's being gored, you you just don't want to get interested in it. You don't want to get involved. And right. it's hard right. to get people involved in it. You, you have to rub their nose in it to get them off of that sofa and get them out under those uh, county commission meetings and city commission meetings and call up those uh, uh, level local legislators on their idiocy. And uh, it's a hard job. And that's the main thing that my friends and I do is try to keep people stirred up about local government so they'll stay involved in it. And we've got cases of corruption here that just, they're horrifying. And right. We've we got a county sheriff up the road a ways here that uh, took offense to a guy driving and chased him down in his personal vehicle. Uh, he and his son and pulled him over and made a traffic stop in his son's Jeep uh, and, and pummeled the guy senseless. Uh, and finally, the FBI had to come in and arrest that county sheriff. And it's to the point where they're doing DNA tests on his badge because this sheriff beat this guy with his badge uh, and happened to leave some DNA evidence on the badge. Jeez. Uh, people will not believe uh, until you rub their nose in it. We right, get- and... Uh- and there's certainly yeah. uh there is certainly a ton of uh of stuff uh, and of course you know if you if you care to go down the the rabbit hole it's very easy there is certainly uh, uh a lot of uh, uh a lot of organizations now that are doing their best uh to expose this uh one of the ones that I was reading uh, a lot of stuff in New Mexico about was, uh, I believe it was called Police State, and uh, there are several organizations that uh, that that's that's what they're doing is they're watching the local governments uh, and the uh, state governments and reporting uh, on the corruption, and uh, uh, that's the only way that you're going to uh, to keep track of it, you know, is by getting. Uh, uh, by searching out the news, because mainstream media certainly, uh, uh, unless it's something that, that benefits them or something they can use to 
to stir up the uh, the population uh, on some kind of uh, topic that they want, something like the media has done uh, in Ferguson, uh, then they're not going to report it, you know? They wrote that press exemption into that proposed amendment. Right. And, and right. people need uh, to remember that although the, the turkey that put this bill up, Mr. Udall, who is unfortunately my senator, uh, happens to be a Democrat, uh, they also need to remember that there are plenty of Republicans sponsoring this fool bill, too. Oh, yeah. And in many well, cases... Look at the initial the one, McCain-Feingold. It wasn't just uh, uh, Democrats. It's all of them who are interested in keeping uh, anybody else from getting their job. Uh, anybody else that uh, that might come in, uh, any of the uh, potential third party or independents that might come in and raise enough money to unseat them, uh, they're going to uh, to do everything they can to limit that, make sure that they stay in power for their 25 years or their 30 years. And uh, I think it should be our duty to ensure they only get one term. Uh, they put up this uh, because yeah, they are of, of the people. SJ well, resolution was introduced because the parties are afraid of the people. Right. Right. Uh, it's a well, uh, maintain power. To do anything they can to stay in power and uh, and keep any of the, like I said, any of the independents, any of the uh, third parties uh, from uh, from raising money to uh, uh, to get their uh, to get their ideas and their issues uh, brought to the forefront. So so that uh, I think that should be one of our uh, one of our main goals is figuring out uh, how to push through. Uh, term limits, and uh, I don't see any reason uh, anybody needs more than one term. I mean, uh, uh, certainly not now. I mean, I'm I'm so sick of uh, of all of them that uh, uh, I'd like to see everybody wiped out and uh, and put in a, a completely new group with uh, one term limits. <clears throat> You know, another case that came around not too long after Wickard was one called Korematsu versus the United States. And I find this one especially interesting and something to worry about uh, in these times specifically. Korematsu was uh, one of those Japanese-American fellows from California that got the concentration camp during the war. And uh, in violation of the Fifth Amendment, you know, the part that says you won't be deprived of liberty without due process of law. But by the order of the president, evidence presented to the court, the Supreme Court upheld that they could lock old Korematsu up. Uh, 
because they felt that the danger of, of potential espionage outweighed Korematsu's individual rights and others of Japanese descent. Well, next time, maybe it's not going to be Japanese. Uh, maybe we'll talk that under the cover of, uh, of uh, uh, religious descent, we're going to lock people up because they pose a threat to the country. And they might yeah. even go up and say, well, we need to lock up all these Muslims. I got, I got some news for folks. If they can go out and lock up all them Muslims for saying what they want to say, we can lock up Methodists and Baptists too. That's right, on you, the same day. That's right, but that Constitution is for everybody's rights all the time. And people need to remember that and keep a firm eye on what the government is doing. We, can lock, up a, we can lock up a Methodist. And that'll be just for thinking about God. So people need to pay attention to what's going on. They need to stay involved. Okay, I'm off the soapbox. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, I I absolutely agree. And uh, uh, that is... I think that is one of the things that uh, a majority of the folks who uh, are pushing uh, for legislation and stuff like this right now, that they don't understand. Uh, I think that especially, you know, with the when you have one party pushing against uh, another party, is that uh, they think that they will always be in power and they will always have their, their finger on the kill switch. Uh, you can't... Uh, the the constitution doesn't pick and choose it's not uh it doesn't belong to any party it's meant to protect all people all parties it doesn't belong to any individual party and uh and a threat to the constitution in any way is a threat to the constitution in every way the threat to the constitution is not just a threat uh, to the Republicans, it's a threat to everybody, and uh, I think that most of the time, I don't, I don't think that a lot of folks don't see it that way. I'm talking about the conservatives too, because the conservatives uh, are just as, uh, as just as ready many times uh, to jump up and try and push something through, like that, uh, like the dang uh, Patriot Act. Uh, I don't know how anybody in their right mind, of course, most of the folks weren't in their right mind after September 11th, but uh, how anybody could have thought that was a good idea. Uh, because look at what we have now. We have a, a horrible erosion of our uh, of our privacy, of our liberties, because uh, everybody wanted to push through this legislation for the uh, Patriot Act, because if you didn't, why then you were unpatriotic. If you didn't, you were a terrorist. Remember what Bush said when he got up on that podium: "If you're not with us, you're against us." And uh, and that was setting the tone for this. And uh, and people have to be careful; they can't get carried away uh, on either side. All right. Well, uh, 
I'm going to switch to another topic right now, and uh, that topic is uh, some of the upcoming events that we have uh, at Battle Road. And uh, I want to let you guys know that uh, the September 27th and 28th, uh, Battle Road will have its uh, the first of a uh, seven-month run uh, with its Ghost of Goliad project. The Ghost of Goliad project is a uh, two-day rifle marksmanship event, and we'll be teaching the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. The two days are designed to give you uh, a really solid, uh, 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 a rock-solid course in the fundamentals. When I say fundamentals, I'm not talking about the basics. I'm talking about the skills and techniques that you'll need uh, in order to uh, competently and safely uh, fire your rifle no matter where your shooting path is going to lead you. Uh, the fundamentals are the same uh, whether you're shooting cans or hunting or uh, if you are uh, working your way towards the Olympics. The fundamentals are the fundamentals. That's the uh, the things you need to know how to uh, how to hold your rifle, how, what positions uh, there are, uh, how to get in the positions correctly, how to use your sling, uh, how to understand uh, <clears throat> uh, zeroing your rifle, how to correctly zero your rifle, uh, how to use your sights correctly, how to adjust them. Uh, understanding what uh, uh, natural point of aim is for you and learning how to attain it. Uh, so the fundamentals uh, are these skills and techniques that you're going to need no matter where your shooting path takes you. Uh, on top of this, we're here in Texas, and what we'd like to do is <clears throat> to tell you about how Texas uh, became an independent republic uh, during the Texas War for Independence. We're going to talk to you about uh, why it happened, uh, who was involved in it, and why they did it. The Texas War for Independence very closely paralleled the American Revolutionary War. Uh, it had a lot of the same... Uh, a lot of the same precursors for the war. The uh, colonists wanted their rights under the British Constitution. And when they were denied those rights and subjected uh, to the intolerable acts and when they actually had their rights and freedoms taken away from them, uh, they began to protest. And once they began protesting, the British government decided that uh, one of the things they could do to more easily control the colonists, get them to shut up, more easily control them, was going to be to confiscate their firearms. And they did this by, uh, uh, they initially did this uh, during the powder raids. And we know what that did was rather than intimidating the colonists, and actually served to galvanize them and get them to uh, begin 
working on formulating a plan uh, to resist this. The the final spark was when the British governor decided to go and confiscate the firearms of the uh, citizens in Concord. And when when that was attempted, that uh, that set off what would become uh, long years of a uh, American Civil War, and and end up with uh, American independence. In Texas, it followed roughly the the very same pattern. The Texas colonists wanted their rights under the Mexican Constitution. The Mexican, Mexican Constitution had been written after the colonists, after the Mexicans, secured their freedom, and uh, the Texans wanted their rights under the Mexican Constitution. When they weren't given it, uh, they began to protest. As their protests uh, became painful to the ears of uh, the government in Mexico, uh, they were placed under a series of acts comparable to the intolerable acts. And finally, uh, Santa Ana decided that uh, in order to more easily subjugate and control these colonists, that uh, he would go and confiscate their weapons, beginning with a, a very small, really rather insignificant cannon in Gonzales. And, uh, and we know what happened there, and that's where the flag came from, the come-and-take-it flag. The colonists decided they weren't going to give up their firearms, and they actually made a flag that had a picture of a cannon on it that said, hey, if you want it, come and take it, or rather come and try and take it is what they meant. Uh, they were repulsed in this attempt, and that further galvanized the Texas colonists in, uh, to, to make the decision uh, to fight for their freedoms, and course of seven months uh, from October of 1835 until April of 1836, there were 12 major battles fought over the seven months. The 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 Texas War for Independence uh, really uh, I'm thinking very closely paralleled the the uh, American Revolutionary War, even to the fact that uh, you know I read a book a while back about the American Revolutionary War titled uh, Almost a Miracle. And and what it did was it uh, it chronicled all of the times that uh, that the the colonists uh, won battles uh, where they 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 really should never have won them, and uh, it was almost a miracle that uh, that everything that uh, that all of the stuff that went right uh, went right, and that the same thing was written about the Texas War for Independence. That uh, that it's almost a miracle that they succeeded. That in all of the battles that they won, they should not have won. All of the things that went right for them, really, it was just 
it was just luck and the grace of God that allowed it uh, allowed them to be successful. And uh, there's even the dates. On April 19th, uh, 1775, you have the colonists uh, the, um, and uh, the uh, colonies began their war. And then uh, on April 20th, you have the Texas colonists uh, ending theirs. So we will have uh, a seven-month project with uh, culmination on the uh, April 19th and 20th weekend uh, of the Texas War for Independence. Now, listen, at the same time that we're, that we're covering the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship and uh, telling the story of the Texas War for Independence, <clears throat> we're also going to introduce uh, top-of-the-hour discussions on self-reliance and prepping. That means that throughout the day, at the top of the hour, uh, we're going to be introducing you to subjects uh, such as uh, water purification and uh, fire starting and land navigation, stuff like that. Now, we're not going to go, uh, we're not going to uh, completely uh, uh, teach a class in any of these right there at the time. So our main goal is going to be teaching you the fundamentals of rifle marksmanship. But we are going to, uh, at the top of the hour on each hour, we are going to take a quick break, and we're going to talk to you about uh, different topics in self-reliance and prepping. So we want you to think about that uh, during the course of the day while you're getting the rest of this information. We also want you to think about the uh, other things that are important. So we'll talk to you about uh, that you've heard on this program, things like uh, uh, like starting fires, like uh, purifying water, like uh, finding your way with a map and compass or using the sun, uh, using the stars at night, uh, how, to, uh, how to perform uh, uh, first aid, uh, wild uh, edible plants and foraging. Uh, so we're going to talk to you about stuff like this during the course of the day as well. And uh, we'd like to get as many people as possible to attend because uh, this will be the September event will be our uh, uh, our initial bang. And we'd like to open this up, open the course up with a bang. And uh, so I'm extending my invitation to, uh, to everyone here. We'll have uh, the course is uh, we've kept it as uh, inexpensive as possible because our goal is to give back to the community rather than to try and make money on this. So we're going to be we'll be trying to keep the prices as inexpensive as possible. Uh, we'll be charging about eighty bucks for uh, for guys, forty bucks for women, twenty bucks for kids. Uh, if you need uh, rifles. Uh, let us know ahead of time. We'll try and round up some loaner rifles for you. And uh, you can get more information about this by going to uh, uh, www.battleroadusa.com. I'll take you to our homepage. And on the homepage, if you look across the top of the page, you'll see a list of, uh, of topics up there. On the far right, 
is the Ghost of Goliath Project. Click on that, and it will take you to the uh, to the page, which will give you an explanation of uh, what we're trying to do with the course. I'm going to make some amendments to that page uh, in the next day or two to also include the uh, uh, the self-reliance and prepping topics on there. <clears throat> but I certainly would like to invite you all out to uh, to that event, and uh, I think that you'll have a great time. Listen, the, all of the instructors have been uh, teaching fundamentals of rifle marksmanship for quite a while. Uh, I myself have been teaching it uh, with a different program uh, for about nine years. And it was only after the, uh, after the other program became uh, mired in, uh, in, petty infighting and political correctness uh, that I decided it was uh, that I would do actually do a better service to the community uh, by by going out on my own and uh, teaching it like I said we haven't the only thing that's changed is really is uh, the the name of what we're doing we're still teaching an absolutely fantastic fundamentals of rifle marksmanship program and uh, we're doing it just as inexpensively as the last program that I was working with. So uh, you are all invited to attend. Uh, the other event that I'd like to invite you to is uh, is the Battle Road USA End of the World as We Know It uh, Zombie Destruction Biathlon. And uh, that's just a uh, the long title for uh, Zombie Biathlon. Uh, this is uh, set up as a running gun project. What it is is Battle Road has created a four and a half mile looping trail, and along that trail there are uh, eight shooting stations. Some are rifle, some are pistol, and then in between the stations are obstacles. In fact, I was working on some of the obstacles today. Uh, things like uh, uh, there. You'll have to go across uh, narrow footbridges without railings. Uh, there may be rope ladders. Uh, there may be a long line of tractor tires that are buried in the ground you have to go through. There may be some underground passages you'll have to crawl through or or low crawl under barbed wire. Uh, you may have to climb over uh, uh, 12-foot-high walls. You may have to climb over several uh, fence gates like you would find out uh, uh, you know, out rurally. The the reason that uh, that this thing came up and was created is because you know, over the last uh, ten years or so, I've been working in the, sh- the shooting community, and the and the shooting community and the self reliance and prepping community really actually interface quite a bit. And uh, and I would get folks all the time that would ask me or tell me, "Hey, listen." Uh, uh, what's the best rifle for the end of the world? Or hey, if something happens, if something goes on, uh, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna use this backpack. I'm gonna use this rifle. Uh, I'm gonna carry my water like this. I'm gonna carry my extra magazines for my rifle like this. I'm gonna have this pistol. Uh, I'm gonna wear these boots. Uh, you know, uh, all of these things that they had been thinking about. Uh, but when I asked them, I said, well, have you ever put all that stuff on? 
and tried to move around in it, the answer was almost always no because uh, there's nowhere to do it. Uh, you you really can't put all that stuff on and go jogging around your neighborhood. Uh, Homeland Security will be on you in a heartbeat, uh, and they'll probably just shoot you first and then uh, then make up a good story to explain why they shot you. Uh, your range doesn't want you to do it. Your range doesn't want you to move around with gear on at it. They want you to stand still in a box and shoot one round every uh, five to eight seconds. Uh, there's really no place that you can do it other than here at Battle Road USA. Uh, here what we want you to do is we want you to get all your gear. We want you to put it all on. We want you to pack your rucksack like you'd pack it if you were uh, going on a bug out. Whatever you want to do, uh, and we want you to try moving only four and a half miles, and uh, during that uh, four and a half miles, you'll experience uh, eight gunfighting situations, uh, as well as having some obstacles to go through. And the obstacles are are not designed to break you. Uh, They're just designed to show you that here are some typical things you might have to do while you are experiencing the, the end of the world from zombies. You may have to climb over a wall. You have to crawl under a fence. Uh, you might have to uh, uh, run across a rope bridge. You may have to do a lot of things. I, today I was working on setting out a, setting up a zip line for the course. Uh, I'm not sure whether that'll be uh, all the kinks will be worked out of that in time or not for this event. It will be for April, for definitely, and that is a zip, li- a zip line over a, a stock tank. But uh, it's to show you when you have all your gear on it and you have to move around in it, when you have to get down on the ground, whenever you have to climb over stuff, is it is the is your gear going to block your access to other things? Is your uh, water bottle going to to fall off? Is your pack going to rub a bloody hole in your shoulder? Uh, does your magazine carrier does it keep you from reaching or uh, from uh, drawing your pistol? All of these things, and uh, the time that you want to find this stuff out is not at the end of the world when you have zombies breathing down your neck, but in a nice, uh, safe atmosphere with a bunch of your friends around who can who can uh, kind of uh, laugh at your misfortunes. Uh, and this is going to be October 11th. October 11th. Uh, that's Saturday. Now, I don't think that we have any more positions open for range officers. Uh, you can certainly send uh, you can certainly send me a note through the contact form on the website, and I'll forward it to Mark, who is uh, who is ramrodding the range officer uh, contingent. Uh, because uh, what we usually allow folks is, if you would like to be a range officer, then you'll come on Friday a day early. You'll run the event with us, with the staff, and uh, then you'll uh, then you'll work one of the stations, uh, or somehow you'll end up working with us on Saturday when we have the general public come in, and then we waive your uh, attendance fees, which is a hundred bucks, and uh, you still get uh, dinner and a shirt, and uh, and you get your scores also included. 
for the uh, you know for the trophies and stuff. <clears throat> if you'd like to do that, you can send me a uh, a, a message through the contact form on the website. Uh, and if not, then uh, you're welcome to come on Saturday, October 11th, and uh, and run the course as a participant. This is uh, like I said, we're the only. This is the only place in the United States where you can do something like this. There, uh, there may be other things that you can do, tough mutters, maybe stuff like that, but we're the only place in the United States that's doing uh, uh, this particular type of thing with obstacles and shooting stations. And that's October, October 11th uh, of this year, and then we'll, uh, we'll run it again in April. Of 2015. For more information, you can go to battleroadusa.com and uh, click on the uh, zombie biathlon. And there's also links there to sign up. Now, one last thing I'll tell you is that uh, we know that we can only do X amount of folks, and that's uh, right at uh, 120 or so folks that we can do on Saturday. That's just that's the limit of what we can do. And uh, I already have over a third of the tickets are already done. They're already gone. So uh, if you if you want to make sure that you're going to get a slot, you should go to BattleRoadUSA.com right now and uh, grab you a slot for the running gun. All right, I want to thank uh, – I want to thank – Everybody who's listening uh, live tonight, and thank all the folks that are going to listen and in uh, uh, download in the archives. Uh, I want to thank uh, Sam, as always. Sam, uh, if I'm here, then Sam D is here as well. And I want to encourage you to contact your representatives and uh, let them know about the uh, about your feelings for the uh, S-Senate Joint Resolution 19, all right? <clears throat> all right, uh, uh, that'll be it for tonight. Uh, we're going to have Becky Akers on uh, sometime after September. She's a fantastic author and a really a great, uh, a great writer and blogger, and... Uh, and then we'll also have uh, several others uh, on in the immediate future. I'd like to uh, encourage you, if you have any topics that you wish to hear about, any guests you'd like to hear, then uh, send me a contact to the BattleRoadUSA.com website, and uh, we'll get those Tell to you. Tell me who's right? that right down the river later? Who's that right down the river later? All right. Thanks, everybody. God bless you, and uh, we'll see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. Central. Christ has
Right, John the Rock. 